Three, two, one. Oh, shit. I'm not recording. <laughs> okay, let's try that clap again. Is everybody else recording? Yeah. Yes. Welcome to Screens of the Stone Age, the podcast where scientists review movies about prehistoric people. My name is Josh Lindell. I'm a grad student studying Neanderthal teeth, and I'm here with... Dr. Kimberly Plomp. I am a bioarchaeologist. I study the human skeleton, disease, and evolution. And I'm Dr. Ross Barnett, uh, with a bit of knowledge about ancient DNA and uh, Ice Age megafauna. A bit. A bit. (laughs) And today we are talking about the movie The People That Time Forgot from 1977. This movie is, of course, a sequel to The Land That Time Forgot from 1974, which we covered almost a year ago at this point. Uh, Ross, you look like you have something to say. No, I'm just, uh, I don't know if we want to trash it right off the bat, but it's... It was so boring. (laughs) Yeah. I mean... I can summarize it. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Breasts. Uh, What? (laughs) A pardon? Breast. <laughs> Boobies. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I like what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah, you're making it sound a lot more interesting than it actually is. Yeah. What was the only interesting part? <laughs> Parts. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's really weird to to think that this film came out the same year as Star Wars. I mean, just, I mean, the, the, for, for kind of, fantasy sci-fi films they're just you know opposite ends of every spectrum you can think of really i mean i imagine their budgets can't have been that dissimilar but yeah one is a you know a well-renowned classic that we're still watching and loving uh nearly 50 years later and the other one is kind of forgotten and rightly so it's funny because I got a real Star Wars feel out of this at some points, but like, well, there's so in many the way that so many people <laughs> are actually in Star Wars. That's true. Yeah, there was a real jab of the hot vibe too. <laughs> yeah, um, you know that way. Sometimes if you watch the original Star Wars that isn't the special edition, and you just get that real feel for, oh, actually, this is a really low budget '70s movie. You can sometimes get that if you can forget about all of the history that came after Star Wars. Yeah. I get like that same real vibe out of this one, except that it's just really boring and uh, not really a lot of science to talk about. The I don't know if you remember the uh, our conversation about the original one, but I went back and listened to a bit of it. And that one had like lots of philosophical conversations about like the human nature and war. And it had lots of scientific musings about uh, dinosaurs and evolution. And this one really doesn't have any of that. It's just a no. couple of action scenes with a lot of traveling in between. Yeah. The, the first one is the one where they ate the plesiosaur, right? And they made That's the it. joke about the wine. Yeah. yeah, that one. I mean, that one was fine. I remember this, not hating that one. <laughs> yeah, this one's very different. I mean, it's it's nice to see... Uh, I always want to call him Troy McClure, because that's, that's the Simpsons <laughs> yeah. character. But Doug McClure um, being his kind of uh, wooden best. Uh, he's the kind of, I guess the, the only kind of plot point really from the first one. I mean, the, I have to say, like, I enjoyed watching this because I loved the very rubbery, uh, dinosaurs and, you know, the ones where you could almost see the clockwork and the, 
you know, just how rubbish they were and how they kind of were they expecting the audience to find that kind of exciting that these kind of badly painted, badly modeled, badly animated rubber dinosaurs were going to be like scary. Mm -hmm. They were just, you know, I could make something better with, you know, a couple of bin bags and some, and some paint. But yeah, I don't know. I think Kim, you should give us an overview because I really would like to hear what someone else thinks. I did already. Oh, you did it. Oh, sorry. That was it. (laughs) Well, I can try. I found it really hard. I don't know if I was just not in the mood to watch a movie or if it was just this one is particularly bad, but I was finding it really hard to pay attention to this. Mm. So it picks up from where the movie from The Land That Time Forgot, Troy McClure or Doug McClure or whatever, and his female companion, they stay, they get stuck in this land, right? But it's yeah. not supposed to. When they, when they leave it, you kind of get this feeling that it's going to be okay that they're stuck there, that they're going to kind of make a nice life together, right? Yeah. And so this picks up where um, the McClure guy's friend wants to go find him because there's just been radio silence. He's disappeared after this expedition that he did. So people are coming to go find him. And so they take a ship up to the ice thing again. But instead of doing a submarine like they did in the first movie, they do a plane a propeller plane over the ice sheets and um, they get attacked in the plane by a pterodactyl, which I don't know. It, I don't, didn't look like, was it a pterodactyl? It didn't look like a pterodactyl. It looked like a, yeah. Um, I mean, I think pterodactyl, the actual species, but it just refers to one is quite a small pterosaur. Whereas this was a giant yeah. rubbery, many toothed, uh, fairly yeah. immobile prop. <laughs> okay. And, uh, sorry, I'm yawning. Um, so they get attacked by that, and then it eventually takes their plane down by accidentally putting its face into their propeller, so it kills itself and also <laughs> takes their plane down, and then they have the most gentle of plane crashes, which is pretty good, so none of them get hurt. And it, So it's Troy's friend and a woman who is, her father is paying for the expedition, and she's a photographer, and then a slash academic lady. guy. Slash lady, yeah. What did I say? Oh no! Just that she's she's not just the daughter of the the financer, but she's a la- lady Charlotte um, in her own oh, right. Oh right, sorry, she's, she's, she's female. I was no, like, she's, what did I call? No, no, no. <laughs> but like like a an aristocrat. Right. Yes, she's rich, British, and the the guy that's with her is American, kind of all all American, Kendall. And then there's this academic guy that's with him that is, is taking notes. I didn't catch what what field he was. He was an anthropologist or something. And um oh my god, I'm sorry, I'm just keep yawning. Um and then there's Hogan, which was the plane flyer, the plane pilot. And um the pilot stays with the plane the whole time. So he kinda is out of the picture shortly after this. And then they start their trek across the um the island and they come into contact with first human they come into contact with is the woman um She's modern homo sapiens. She's from a certain tribe that's been killed off by this other tribe of people. And she's wearing the most uncomfortable top where her, half of her boobs are just constantly exposed. Like, as a woman, I'm like, that's just so uncomfortable. Like, either have them all out or covered enough, but like, have them half covered. Like, so it's just pushing into you. Oh, it was, it'd be so uncomfortable. But they were beautiful. And, um, so they find out that she knows this Tyler guy who is the 
clear guy, but she says that he's dead um, because people have been wiping, the other tribes have been wiping out her people. Um, but then they decide that they're not going to take her word for it necessarily. They're going to keep going to try and find more evidence of whether he's alive or dead or what's happening. So they keep going into the island. Um, they run into a couple dinosaurs, a, a ceratosaurus, I think. And then um, they run into the tribe that's killing her people. So they see two of her people running. And then the tribe is, the bad tribe is um, chasing them. And they try and scare them off with um, flare guns. But it doesn't really work for some reason. They don't seem too phased by the flare guns. So then they kill the two men. But just before one of the men dies, he's able to say that he saw Tyler in the Mountain of Skulls. Or Skull Mountain or something which is another group of people. And these have, this one is a very like Game of Thrones, Lord of the Ringy type civilization and um, Game of, or Star Wars. So they are all wearing masks and um, have weapons and very modern, modern looking stuff. And then they take them, sorry, when they get to the skull, the mountain skull, which is so cool. Like, why don't we do architecture like that nowadays? <laughs> Well, we made out of cardboard and like stuck that. in a hill. Yeah. <laughs> but we could live in skulls. Uh, anyways. Um, so then they get captured, obviously, because the people aren't necessarily friendly. And so they get captured and their king guy. So this is where it gets very Game of Thronesy. So the king guy is this big Jab of the Hutt to like guy. And he's a weird color. And I couldn't tell if if it was like a cultural thing where he was wearing paint or if they were supposed to be that he was not human in some way because he was like a greeny gray color and he had this really greasy creepy um mystic henchman guy so that's where the game of thrones comes into play and um so they take the guys and they're like okay the men are going to go to the prison and the women are going to be sacrificed to our god which is this mystic looking volcano and so they're getting sacrificed when the god's sister wakes up, which is the sun when she rises. Um, and then so the guys get put down into the prison. And then that's when they find Torm Leclerc, who's all bearded and obviously been down there for a long time. And they're like, okay, we need to save the women. They find out that the woman that he was with, that he, we left him with when in the old movie, she got sacrificed to the volcano. So she was gone. So they very slowly and very boringly fight the prison guards and get out there's like no sound effects either so it was like watching the outtakes of it right mm. yeah it was bad it was so boring yeah and then um they get up to the top where the girls are just about to be um sacrificed and they stop it just in time and i quite like this so the king guy has the um the breast woman in his hands and he's about to like, <laughs> she has a name cut him. her head off she has a name. I don't remember her name. <laughs> Adjur. That's her name. Adjur. And um and so they they're trying to save her, but they can't really because you know if they get close, he's gonna cut her head off. And so she bites him, which I really like. So she bites his wrist and arm to the point that he finally lets go and then he falls back into a volcano. <laughs> so she kind of saves herself, which I enjoyed. And then again, then his more of a tension come in and they have a really slow, drawn-out, boring fight. And then eventually they win, but the volcano is about to explode, so they have to escape. Um, and they're very slowly walking down the volcano steps. And then they decide, one of the guys has to decide that he has to go back because he left his notes in the camera and stuff, and they don't want to leave the academic evidence of the island. 
And so he goes up and it's so funny because there's a snake like in his way and he there's like this really slow moment of him trying to figure out how he's going to get around the snake while this volcano is exploding and other henchmen are coming in to kill him. He just very slowly moves the snake to the other side and reaches and grabs his stuff. Um, anyways, and then they escape the volcano, fight more henchmen, and then they're running across the island because they have to get across the island to the plane in time because the plane has to be able to catch the boat. Because the boat is going to leave at a certain time, assuming that they're all dead if they don't get back by this certain time. And we're getting down to that point now. So the boat is actually starting to get ready to leave. So they have to run through the island while there's a volcano going and people chasing them. And there's a lot of, like, you could tell that this is where all their money went is in all the fire explosions around them as they're running forever, as the volcano is exploding. Then they make it to the plane and Hogan is ready for them. And then they get on the plane and they make it to the boat and everybody's happy. And there's some misogynistic, really gross comments about the souvenir they brought back, which is the woman. And then, yeah, the end. Did I miss anything? No, <laughs> that is pretty much it. <laughs> I mean, you missed out some of the dinosaurs, I guess. They, they, yes, they well, used... a lot of them I couldn't tell what they were supposed to be. Well, the, right at the beginning, after they have their very most gentle crash, but which in, incapacitates their plane. Oh, the Stegosaurus. The Stegosaurus, yes. which is really shoddy. Yes. I mean, at some stages, it's like it looks like it grows in size by about sort of six times. Like in some of the yeah. close-up shots, it's supposed to be the sort of size of four elephants, and then other times, it's about the size of a, a large Alsatian kind of stuff. And the noise that they had it making was so funny. It was very mechanical, but it also sounded like a mixture between an elephant and a cat, like an angry cat. Mm. It was really funny. And they just had it on repeat. I mean, it could have, Yeah. it just said, made the same noises all the time. Yeah. And they used it to move the plane. So mm. they tied a rope to its tail and then got it angry. So it started to walk away slowly. And that was enough to move the plane to get it. Yeah. I don't remember if they got it flying again, but. They, they did. That's how they escaped. Because they escaped that, back to the was at the beginning. They, they escaped. I don't know why they had to move it at the beginning. No, it was like was, stuck yeah. on something. It was not clear why they had to move uh, it. Right. Okay. Yeah. And there's also when they're escaping from the volcano and they're going through the caves, they meet. First of all, a really weird uh, kind of tunnel of of kind of dinosaur heads. That's just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, gauntlet of dinosaur heads. Yeah, it's basically it's clearly disguised with their hands in some dinosaur yeah. puppets. Uh, I mean, how did how did like a dozen long necked dinosaurs end up in a cave underground, and all happen to poke <laughs> their heads through holes in the same place? I mean, from both sides. So there's like sides. two different groups on opposite sides yeah. of this hallway. With yeah. I took it that it was like wall. a booby trap that the people put in, <laughs> ah, like they that, were dogs or something. That could be it. So you think it was very much similar to the plesiosaur, yeah. right? The like first could one. could even be a reused prop. And then there's there's a really terrible terrible um i couldn't even figure out what it was it was some kind of it wasn't a dinosaur Inclosaur or something was I, it a diamond it was like or? a protosuchian or, or some other kind of synapsids or anapsid or some kind of non-dinosaurian generic prehistoric animal because it, it has a sprawling posture so it has the kind of arm right, positions yeah. of a crocodile whereas dinosaurs have like an upright posture uh, and it just looked I think really... that was supposed to be a Scutosaurus. Yeah, that's it. I read that as well somewhere, which isn't a dinosaur. Yeah, it's from before the dinosaurs. Yeah. It's from the Permian, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, these kind of Permian sort of reptile-ish things. 
Um, but it just looked really cheesy, and it it looked like it was on like a some uh, furniture casters or something, and somebody was just pushing it around. <laughs> and they they also see something similar, which uh, looks like a, a protosukian, so like a, a kind of big-headed crocodile in the forest at some point. Which you know they they did go to quite a bit of effort to hide how how shoddy their their um, dinosaurs were this time round. So they're often like hidden behind foliage or only seen in kind of darkness and uh, in a long shot. Yeah, the shittiness of the dinosaurs was not the issue with the movie. <laughs> right? Well, it was one of the issues, I think. Well, I mean, I think if, the, if you lean into shitty dinosaurs, it's okay, yeah. right? Like if you're like, this is ridiculous and we're just going to make it ridiculous, that's fine. It was just really campy though, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, and I read like in the synopsis, they said they run into Neanderthals. And so I was waiting for that. And so the people at the end with the volcano, when they took off the mask, mm. it was a really weird looking person. And I, I wonder if that was supposed to be the Neanderthals. I think so. And also the ones that, that chase after them, after the two members of Adjur's tribe and kill them, they, they have kind yeah. of facial prosthetics as well. I think those oh, were the Neanderthals. I don't know who that disfigured face at the end was supposed to be. One of the things about this movie yeah. is it doesn't explain anything. <laughs> like the, the the previous movie has a lot of like exposition about why things are the way they are, and this one is just like you watch the other movie. Here's a bunch of more dinosaurs and weird stuff. Yeah, yeah, it was not as good. And the yeah the the new guy, um, the all American friend of Troy McClure that's coming to rescue him, who's called McBride. He isn't very charismatic really he's he's no. no doug mcclure but the the main kind of modern uh female protagonist lady charlotte she's actually really good she, her acting was pretty good um and she at least you know she's not just uh boobs as the other character is she is the photographer and she has um input into the film she has ideas She's not just a one-dimensional um, character. Yeah, they they made her somewhat of a feminist uh, yeah. character, right? Like, which is obviously good. so. In the end, again, she ends up. There's a romantic thing between her and McBride. Again, they don't really get on the entire time, and he bugs her, and he kind of dismisses her the entire time. Yeah. And then in the end, it's just a ah ha ha, and now we're in love. Yeah, that's that's how they did back then. Um, yeah, the. The main character, they have this sort of girl power theme with them where the main character is very misogynistic. And then at the end, I think that he's won over because it turns out she had a gun in her bag the whole time. And he's like, wow, I guess I guess you are just like a man carrying a gun. And then he's won over. I can't I don't know what. Yeah, you're right. The uh, romantic thing just sort of comes out of nowhere. Hmm. Yeah. And then Hogan, who's got to be about 60, the, the engineer, uh, somehow manages to get um, or tries to rather creepily, I think, towards the end, uh, get involved with uh, Adjur. The <laughs> I've got her in my notes as the chesty cave lady, <laughs> uh, and uh, he he kind of convinces her to to move to Nebraska with uh, with him as long as there's no volcanoes there. Hmm. Well, he doesn't really even convince her. He just says it like assuming yeah. like there's this assumption that everybody's paired off, and so he gets her. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's very seventies and, and campy in, in that kind of way. Um, Professor Bay is that I his name? Forgot to mention though, also that Tyler dies. Yeah. So the whole point of them going to do any of this is 
pointless because yeah. he dies. He, but I mean, it's so. I mean, after like as Kim was saying, the the fight scenes are just to a modern audience, they're just laughably bad. They're they're like sub nineteen uh, sixties Batman kind of style. I mean, it would have been actually probably better if they had kind of Kapow and Bamo uh, come yeah. up on the screen when they're <laughs> when they're doing the hits. But I mean, yeah, it would have been better when, when they're escaping and they're being chased by these bad volcano guys uh and uh tyler the the doug mcclure character doesn't think they're going to get away and he tries to buy some time he's getting shot out with arrows and like one of them just obviously bounces off his face i mean they didn't even cut out the I fact that it was like <laughs> a really shoddy rubber <laughs> arrow so that was quite funny mm-hmm. when was the first one made like 1974 and this one was 78 77. Because Troy McClure aged a lot for in three years. It's just the beard, I think. That, that beard kind of makes him look super old because it's quite gray. It was pretty white. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not only did uh, Doug McClure's character, uh, Bowen Tyler, die in this one when they were supposed to be rescuing him, but in the last movie, he, was, he had a, a woman companion with him, Lisa, and she dies in between movies. They just sort of get rid of her before this movie. Yeah, so. she was sacrificed to the volcano, he says. It's a real alien resurrection kind of uh, <laughs> approach yeah. to character continuity between films. Uh, no, Alien 3, sorry, that's what I mean. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, I think probably the most interesting thing about it is how many of the actors actually are in Star Wars. Because um, it says that this is filmed at Pinewood like Star Wars was. So Dave Prowse... Darth Vader in the flesh, not the voice. Uh, he's the executioner of the volcano people. You don't see his face, but he's this sort of giant seven foot tall guy. Um, Richard Le Parmentier, who uh, is General Motti in Star Wars, who gets force choked by Vader. He's uh, Lieutenant Whitby in, in this. He's one of the crew members on the Polar Queen, the boat that has the ship that takes them to the, the land that time forgot. Um, we have the tiny, uh, creepy guy. That's the boss to the, the weird colored guy. Uh, I mean, I have, I have them in my notes as the, where, where is it? Jabba the Hutt and Salacious Crumb. Yeah. The fat eyebrow man and the creepy <laughs> little witch boy. Uh, so the creepy little witch boy is, uh, called Shane Reimer and he, no, sorry, Kieran Shah. And he plays an Ewok in, uh, Return of the Jedi. So that's another kind of Star Wars connection. Uh, Sarah Douglas, who plays Lady Charlotte, she was married to uh, Richard Le Parmentier. Um, so that's Lieutenant Whitby in this film or General Motti in, uh, in Star Wars. So that's a connection there as well. Uh, and apparently, I mean, I got all this stuff from, from IMDb, but apparently Dana Gillespie, who is the chesty cave lady, she plays Adger, um, but she apparently was a, a paramour of David Bowie back in the day. So there's all sorts yeah, of kind I of all sorts of interesting kind of connections, which are much more interesting than the film that they're in. And uh, the main character McBride is, um, I think his name's Patrick Wayne. He's John Wayne's son. Oh, really? Oh, oh. I didn't notice that. Yeah, I, I read that on IMDb too. Wow. I mean, it could have been an okay movie if they just tried a little bit harder. <laughs> But there's other uh, similarities with Star Wars as well. Like one of the most notable is. Uh, Charlie, Lady Charlotte, is wearing Princess Leia cinnamon bun hair at the beginning of the movie, which yeah. I thought was interesting because yeah. 
George Lucas, I thought, chose that hair specifically because it was a really unusual fashion that people weren't familiar with. Yeah. Uh, and that wasn't in style in the 70s. Nope. So I had to look into it a little bit. George Lucas says he got the style from turn of the century, century revolutionary Mexican women guerrilla fighters, but it turns out that doesn't seem to have been an actual style that they wore, uh, even though I think he, he has some photo. There's some photo going around of some female guerrilla fighter from Mexico wearing a hairstyle like that. But there's a similar style worn by the uh, Hopi tribe in the, the American Southwest, which might be actually what it's based on. Mm. And then apparently in the 1920s, uh, sort of trendy bohemian women uh, were adopting like ethnic hairstyles, including this one. So you can find some pictures of women from the 20s wearing these these sort of cinnamon bun hairstyles. And I guess that's what this is referencing because this is set in 1919. Mm. So she, because she's a trendy woman, she must be wearing that hairstyle. But it's a weird coincidence that in 1977, both these movies came out within three months where they're both featuring this hairstyle. But not only that, they're filmed in the same yeah. place. So clearly someone's copying somebody else. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that I never thought about that. So I was imagining this movie came out three months later and I'm like, they couldn't be copying it because Star Wars wouldn't have been out when they were filming this one. But if they were filmed in the same place, you're right. They yeah. probably have a lot of uh, overlap. Both filmed at Pinewood. Could have had the same hairdresser. <laughs> the same wig department. Yeah. Uh, something that can't be a coincidence is the whole Skull Castle, all the similarities to Jabba's Palace, but uh, Jabba's Palace wasn't in the original Star Wars. It was in the 1983 uh, Return of the Jedi. Hmm. So you've got this like desert palace with some creepy sort of big fat green slobby leader with a creepy little tiny guy as a sidekick that sits beside him and uh doesn't really do anything i guess and then the main characters end up in a dank cave-like dungeon underneath mm -hmm. where they have to fight to get out uh the main characters kill some uh faceless guards and take their armor and use the armor to sneak into another room and then take their helmets off to reveal their faces very dramatically and then there's a big sword fight. Yeah. Uh it so much of it felt so Star Warsy to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh no, I was wondering if the girls were gonna end up in gold bikinis. <laughs> <laughs> wondering or hoping. <laughs> uh but the, the the guy that plays the kind of Jabba the Hutt character, this really extravagantly eyebrowed, uh, enormous guy, is an actor called Milton Reed. But apparently, he uh, his father was Scottish and his mother was Mongolian, um, and so that's how how he he has a kind of I guess a, a unique parentage that that helps to give him a, a, a kind of a different look um, from many of the other actors in in, hmm. the, in the film. Um, but he seems mm -hmm. to have had a really kind of tragic life that he, um, reading a bit of background into him, he, he kind of did a few films in Hollywood and then uh, went to, to Bollywood using some of the connections he had there uh, and, and died quite young from um, just not having a very good good uh, good time, which is quite sad. I, don't, I still don't know why he was painted green. No. But then, you know, not a lot of things in this film make sense. Um, whereas in the first one, like Josh says, there's a, a fair amount of kind of exposition and uh, philosophical discussion. I think in this, mm -hmm. all it boils down to is, oh yeah, the island's alive and the volcano's its heart. Yeah, just trust well, me on they this. Never, they never talk about, like in the first one, they 
follow the river and there's the whole like things are evolving closer up to the river and then you get to the giant egg thing where that's life right mm-hmm. and that's where the life stops and comes up the river and like that's that life. just doesn't come into play at all like how is that not an important thing on the island if you're going there no doesn't make sense does not make sense <sighs> yeah so both movies uh the first one explicitly and this one more implicitly take this linear view of evolution and also uh like mm. cultural technological development and uh, the technology one is sort of more obvious in this one because you have your like different tribes of people that are supposed to be sort of different levels of advanced. Uh, I think they specifically mentioned when um, Charlie is explaining the story that uh, Ajor told her, which, by the way, I don't think this movie passes the Bechdel test because the only two female characters they have a conversation, but the entire conversation happens off screen. And then the other one comes in to just narrate the conversation they had, which I feel was really weird. Mm. I'm not sure why Adjar couldn't have just told the story herself. But uh, Adjar told the story of uh, Lisa and Tyler from the previous movie. They helped the her tribe. I think it's the Galu tribe. Yeah. They taught them farming and then they taught them uh, they taught them farming and helped them advance from the Stone Age to the Iron Age, uh, which I mean, it's this misconception about uh, cultural evolution, how it happens in these linear stages that every civilization has to go through. Uh, But also that um, Western civilization, two people from Western civilization can jump in uh, and... Evolve people. (laughs) Yeah, two people from Western civilization can jump in and just give all the technology uh, and, like advance an entire civilization just from their their singular influence i mean it's crazy if you think about it for just a second like dude i don't know how to uh smelt iron from uh from ores i don't know how to uh organize crop rotation or find uh the kind of right ways to plant crops in a field i don't know how to <laughs> how to make bronze yeah, no. or or how to cast metal i mean the idea that uh troy mcclure um would have any idea how to do any of those, or Lisa is kind of falls apart if you think about it for just like a second. Uh huh. Yep. Although, uh, have you guys ever seen the uh, Primitive Technology channel on YouTube? Have we talked about that guy before? I think no, we mentioned him. I don't think so. I think you've mentioned him. It's this uh, Australian guy who, like, his job is like he's like a like he cuts lawns. He's like a I don't, I'm not exactly landscaper. sure to what, it, yeah, like maybe a landscaper, maybe he just goes around and like just cuts people's lawns with a lawnmower. But um, for years, he's been putting up these videos sort of at his own pace where he just sort of has a parcel of land that has a bit of forest in it in Australia. And he just goes out and he films himself doing some sort of, you know, primitive technology. Uh, it's completely wordless, but he's got a, an extensive description in the text about what he's doing. And he just like does things like he plants a sweet potato garden. He creates a flint axe. He uses the flint axe to cut down trees and make himself a shelter. He digs up uh, clay and makes bricks and he makes a kiln and he makes mm-hmm. uh, clay tiles for his shelter and stuff like this. 
He's been doing cool. it for years and his videos are like months and months apart because he, it takes months to get this like 10 or 12 minute video that he puts up. But lately he's been doing tons of iron stuff. Like he's digging up this like rusty clay and baking it and he gets these tiny little beads of iron and he's been collecting them until now he's like making iron tools that he got out of literally dirt. And uh, he just like films this for months at a time and puts these things together. So if you haven't seen it, it's it's uh, amazing to watch. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it seems like it's cool. a bit of a misnomer, though. I mean, the idea that that any of this technology is primitive is pretty much nonsense. Like, you know, making yeah. uh, a spear or a knife or or some other implement out of flint is super complex, as you guys know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not easy. It's not something you can just pick up and do. You have to be taught it. It's a lot of experience and skill. Yeah. Yeah, and in biology, primitive is a very specific term that is a relative term. Uh, Like, something can't be more primitive than another. It's when you're comparing two things. So if something is similar to an ancestral form, it's primitive. But if it's different, it's called derived. But it doesn't imply this ranking of evolution. And Mm -hmm. when it comes to cultural stuff, primitive is just not a word. I don't think that we can even really use it to describe culture because there's no such thing as primitive culture. All culture is equally complex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. Apart from, obviously, the culture in the land before time, uh, the land time forgot because, yeah. (laughs) We never see them do it. Yeah, 1970s uh, attitudes towards... uh, uh, women are primitive, I guess yeah, we can okay, say. Yeah, okay, we can say that. <laughs> yep. uh. I think I'm going to say I'm yawning so much just because the movie was so boring. It was so hard to stay awake <laughs> through it. Yeah. Um, we didn't do our regular, like, nitpicking inaccuracies, I guess partly because there's nothing accurate about it and also because they don't really say anything specifically, right? Yeah. They don't really even say or do anything, right? Like, there's no dialogue there's no it's just all relationships really built up or anything it's all the tropes that we've we've kind of encountered time and time again you know the tribes warring against each other for no understandable reason people getting kidnapped and having to be uh got out of jail uh you know Mm -hmm. um people worshiping volcanoes and uh wanting to sacrifice the the kind of lithesome uh 70s ladies to as, as an excuse to get them into the the skimpiest of outfits, it seems. And, you know, chases mm. that are pointless characters that do things for, for no kind of logical reason. Yeah, that's all in there. And rubber dinosaurs, of course. There's a couple of uh, details that I could uh, pick out here. So uh, at some point, there is a giant tarantula that, that jumps off a tree onto Lady Charlotte, and she has her very good leading woman scream. Uh, because that's, I guess, her main role, even though she's supposed to be all girl power. She's got the best scared scream. Yeah, well, and that's supposed to, like, that was supposed to humanize her, right? Yeah. She's scared of spiders. And you're like, um, anybody would scream with a giant tarantula <laughs> fell on you. Yeah, And she does get a good little line in after that, because uh, uh, McBride sort of teases her for it. And she says, everybody has their weaknesses. Mine is spiders. Yours is me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the spider, the professor calls it a Pisilotheria fasciata. And I looked that up, and that's a modern tarantula from Sri Lanka. Uh, and this island is supposed to be somewhere between South America and Antarctica. So 
I mean, it's one thing to have all these extinct animals because this magic river is making them evolve there or something, but it doesn't explain why there is a modern Sri Lankan spider on this island. <sighs> Budget cuts. I think that's what explains it. <laughs> Plus, um, also, the- this professor, he's a bit of an arsehole. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's not really of any use to anyone at any time. He, he um, no. He's just always kind of getting in the way and not doing anything particularly helpful. And all this time, we discover towards the end, he's had a sword in his walking stick, and he only <laughs> he only pulls it out at the end when he could have used it many other times during the film. Uh, Charlie with her gun too, right? Yeah, yeah. But it's because uh, the the meathead Americans were too busy kind of shooting everything uh, with their guns and with their flares. Like that, when they're flying in on the plane from the boat into the island and they're being attacked by the pterosaur and he's like it's magnificent and then instantly guns are out and they're shooting at it yep. um which is a, a common With kind of such attitude bad aim like it takes so long they, and they don't even shoot it down it it propels its own face yeah right <laughs> after biting off their <laughs> rudder yeah uh speaking about the meathead americans again uh the like colonial attitudes of this movie are like all throughout it like everybody speaks english and it's because tyler taught everybody english and i just can't imagine why one guy who speaks english shows up in this world and everybody's like oh you have to teach me your language so i can communicate with you be like fuck you tyler learn our (laughs) language (laughs) yeah yeah and then only one person has to learn it rather than however many hundred and also i mean I am only fluent in one language, but I've tried learning a few languages. I'm, I'm, I can speak a little bit, but it's so hard to learn a language without having people to converse with. So, like, they've only got one guy who speaks English. They're not having conversations amongst lots of people. So, mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine they could get to levels of being that fluent in that situation. Yeah. Yep, that's true. There's also a bit. I mean, the the kind of the bad. The ultra bad guys, the volcano worshipping um, skull people. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> yeah, that I makes mean, it sound like a cool movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they turn up, first of all, and they're wearing kind of uh, obviously Japanese samurai inspired armor. But they've got flags that just obviously. have. Obviously. <laughs> obviously. Uh, but they've also. That doesn't make any sense. That was no. like out of nowhere. Why are they Japanese samurais? Yeah. But they also got fl- flags, which are just skulls. And it, it, you kind of have to think, hmm, are these the bad guys, perhaps? The ones that have skulls on their on their flags and live in a, in a literal skull mountain? Yeah, are we the bad guys? Yeah. Are we the baddies? <laughs> have you seen that sketch? Yeah, yeah. The Mitchell and Webb. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they, they trust them. Like he's, they, they sort of have this really pointless conversation where... They they invite them all back to their their skull mountain because they they claim what is it they claim they're just misunderstood or something. Yeah, they say Tyler is like some big leader and he's yeah. the one who uh, sent them for them, right? Yeah, but it was well, all it turns a trick. out he's in prison. Well, yeah, there's this, in a in a in a skull prison which is just full of skulls and skeletons. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the skull mountain because first of all, the walls are made of. Actual human-sized skulls, although mm. slightly too big, but I can talk about that later. But so the walls are made of the skulls of dead people, and they they talk about how after they cut their heads off, they're going to use them to build their their walls. 
but also there are giant skulls like the the jab of the hut guy sits inside the mouth of yeah. a giant skull and mm. the entire castle when you see it's a matte painting and you can see it from the distance it's made of giant skulls like four or five story tall human skulls and so obviously these are not meant to be uh, the skulls of giant people, because we don't see any giant people, right? So mm -hmm. are we to believe that they've built this building with walls made of skulls, but also they have somehow fashioned giant, like their architecture is designed to make it look like a skull? Like They've just they like, found a like, theme like they really like. It, it's yeah. just like, yeah, I, I get it. It would be cool to live inside a giant skull, but also <laughs> looking at like the technology they have and stuff like this, like... Are we really to believe they put this much effort into making their castle look like a skull? <laughs> yeah. Like, what are their priorities in this civilization? They've also it's cut just some big corners as well. Skull fetish. So when they're in the in the, the the skeleton jail next door to Troy McClure, it's not even like one skull thick. Like, he's able to put his face right up against the inside <laughs> of the skull and look through the, the sockets. And then it takes, like, half a punch to knock between the walls. I mean, that's, that yeah, is not good planning. Yeah. <laughs> No one, you cannot, can't expect to keep a prisoner in in uh, a jail that, that, that is that shoddily made. One thing that that made me think about there is he looks through the eyes of the skull, and of course that skull is way too big because a skull fits inside your head. So if the <laughs> skull can like cover your entire face, that's bigger than a human skull. And it just made me think about how I um, am teaching an anthropology class right now, and we're doing an osteology section. And when people see a human skull for the first time, they're very often very surprised how small it is, because mm. you, you want to think it's as big as a human head. But if you take the hair and the skin and all the muscles and everything off, it's, of course, smaller than a human head. So I think a lot of people are surprised how small a human skull actually is when they see one in person. Yeah. Same with elephants and stuff. Yeah. yeah, like everything, I guess. Everything's bones are going to be smaller than you might expect. Uh, at least the skulls. Uh, for long bones, a lot of the time people are surprised how uh, long they are. There's a lot of the early reports of giant skeletons from the uh, Americas uh, that we still hear about today sometimes. People talking about conspiracy theories about us hiding the giant skeletons. Uh, yeah. A lot of that has to do with people are just kind of surprised how long a femur bone is mm. uh, because, you know, part of it is sort of buried into your hip. So it's it extends a little farther than you might think the leg would. Yeah. So it, yeah. bones can be misleading if you're not familiar with them uh, about trying to interpret how big the thing that they came from was. But uh, a lot of the skulls built into the walls looked like they were trying to make them look primitive, like they had thick eyebrow ridges. They were pretty robust. Uh, but they yeah. were very distinctly not Neanderthal. I paused on so many shots to look at all the skulls, and I'm like, these these could be Homo erectus, but they're definitely not Neanderthals, even though I guess they don't say it explicitly, but I think that the, the cave people that they're fighting with are meant to be Neanderthals. Mm. At least according to, like, Wikipedia and different reviews, they call them Neanderthals. Well, that might just be the public interpretation of it, though. Yeah, I couldn't tell. I thought it looked very Homo erectus-y, but I think it was... I think probably just based on nothing but the idea of what a Neanderthal or primitive skull, human skull looks like, right? Just the big brow ridges. And I don't know whether his throne was supposed to be a dead thing or if it was made. There was the jaw and everything too. Mm -hmm. So it could have been like a King Kong type thing. <laughs> like obviously it doesn't look like a gorilla, but you know. 
I think the movie just really doesn't care about any of it. It's like, here's some cool skulls. Yeah. Don't think about it. Cool skulls. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Our audience is asleep by now anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> the Neanderthal people themselves, if they're Neanderthals, the people with the prosthetic eyebrows, um, they were hunting them with bows and arrows. Uh, and the the movie wants us to, or the movie believes in a linear evolution of biology and culture. So under its own logic, Neanderthals wouldn't have bows and arrows because Neanderthals never invented that technology. Bows and arrows are a relatively late technology for most peoples, but they mm. were invented a few different times. Like they were invented in the Americas independently of uh, Eurasia, like around the end of the Ice Age, I guess, after after 10,000 years ago. I'm not exactly sure how old bows and arrows are. Maybe 6,000 years in North America? But Neanderthals didn't have them for sure. No. They're also, I mean, they're wearing furs, and, and like they look like they're mostly wearing furs, but in, any, in every shot, you can see that they're wearing woven fabrics, tailored woven fabrics underneath their furs, which I think is just a lazy costume design and not really meant to, for us to think about how these people are weaving fabrics. No, and we never get that clear of a shot of them. Like, they're no. never just standing still for a long period of time. It's yeah. And kind of one of those things where they're all moving around in the background. And they're decorated in animal bones and such, too. Yeah, they were all wearing skulls on their heads for some reason. Mm -hmm. They do tie them up to stakes as an offering to some sort of dinosaur. Uh, until Adjor comes to rescue them, and then that's when they end up going to Skull Mountain after that. But I guess that implies they have the technology to make ropes, and they have some sort of mallets for pounding stakes into the ground. <laughs> and some kind of religion as well. Yes. Well, actually, they commented on that uh, McBride was unconscious, and I guess the other two, either they woke up earlier or they never went unconscious. And so McBride wakes up and finds himself in this situation and the professor's filling him in and he's like, seems like we're being offered up to something. And he mentions something like a religious offering and he's like, I'm thinking something more practical. So maybe it was just to keep the dinosaur from eating them oh, yeah. rather than anything religious. Although that also didn't look like a dinosaur. We never got no. a good look at it, but it seemed to be some sort of Permian uh, yeah. quadruped. Um, one thing that I wanted to mention was, uh, relating to Skull Tower again, or Skull Mountain, uh, in the city in Serbia where I work, there is a Skull Tower, uh, which is just called Skull Tower, Celakula in Serbian. Uh, have I mentioned that before? Have you guys ever heard of that? No. No. In the early 1800s, uh, when the Ottoman Empire was ruling or invading Serbia, uh, there was some sort of rebel standoff in this city uh, where uh, a group of Serb rebels tried to hold off this encroaching Ottoman army and uh, they were losing. So what they did was uh, they set off uh, a mortar charge or an explosion. I'm not sure what kind of technology they had at the time uh, in their own sort of camp and killed themselves and all of the uh, attacking Ottomans. Whoa. And then yeah, and then the Ottoman Empire took over the city, I guess, and they built a tower out of the skulls of all the rebels in the city, sort of as a warning. Uh, oh. it, it was originally, um, it's not like a very tall tower, but it was originally uh, like 14 layers of skulls tall, and it had uh, 958 skulls originally. Whoa. 
And how did they how did they separate out the rebel skulls from the Ottoman skulls? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> the The tower still exists today. So they uh, at some point in the 1800s they partially dismantled it, but then they reconstructed it with whatever skulls were available. They tried to I guess skulls were removed, and they tried to get back as many as they could. And then they built a chapel around it, and then there was renovations over the years. So today it's still standing with a building around it, and it's it's protected mm. behind glass. There's only about 50 skulls remaining in it, so it's mostly a big sort of mortar tower with, like, skull-shaped holes in it, Mm. Uh, but there are at least 50 skulls left. Uh, Plus, there is a skull of the leader, or which is believed to be of the leader, uh, which is sort of set aside in its own sort of glass case, and I'm also not sure how they knew it was his skull either. Um, But if you are, if you happen to go to Serbia, I would recommend going to the city of Niš and checking out the Skull Tower. It's uh, yeah. very, very interesting uh, to see. Very and cool. of course, the Serbs kept it after the Ottoman Empire fell, even though it's made of the Serb skulls, <laughs> because for them, it's a symbol of rebellion. Yeah. Right. Wow. Mm, very cool. And so does that mean that like basically 900 skulls have, have gone missing from this tower? Yeah. People have helped yeah. themselves. Pretty much, yeah. Yep. Wow. I once went on holiday to um, Czech Republic, and um, we went to see, well, myself and my girlfriend went to see the uh, Sedlec Ostery, which is similar, I guess, in terms of design, but uh, is, is basically kind of art made from um, disinterred uh, burials. So nobody died horribly for this. But they, they just ran out of space and, and uh, like with the, the Paris catacombs, they kind of dug them up and uh, kind of placed them more economically, shall we say. Uh, and so the, the uh, said like Ostery is quite famous for them having made things like chandeliers and uh, patterns on the walls out of skulls and uh, limb bones and all sorts of stuff. But we went uh, from Prague and it was closed. So that was quite disappointing. Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that one's much more famous. Yeah, in Faro in Portugal, there's a chapel um, decorated with skulls and long bones. It's absolutely beautiful. It's still in really good condition. The Capella dos Osos Bone Chapel mm. in Faro. Definitely worth going if you're in southern Portugal. But the one thing that none of these places did was to uh, uh, fashion the outside of the building as a giant human skull with walls inside no. made up of real human skulls. That's the part yes. where it breaks from reality for me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's very Skeletor, isn't it? That's, uh, that's yeah. the kind of thing he would do, or, or He-Man and Castle Grayskull. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, if your recording doesn't work, Josh, I'm not watching the movie again, so we'll just <laughs> consider this loss. <laughs> So, this one is a do not recommend. No. No. I give it zero California bands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not even inter- Like, he doesn't even make me angry. You know what I mean? Like, it's not even yeah. anything. It's just blah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not very interesting at all. No. Not very interesting at all. That could be the tab- tagline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If you've been enjoying Screens of the Stone Age, get in touch with us. Follow us on Twitter at SOTSA underscore podcast and on Facebook at SOTSA podcast. Or send us an email to screensofthestoneage at gmail.com. 
Screens of the Stone Age is supported by the Paleoanthropological Society of Canada. Find out more at pasc-scpa.ca. 